um, we'll be in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to wrap up our look at the Gospel of Mark. And really, ultimately, it's been this whole thing of sort of refocusing our, our lives and our hearts and our eyes on Jesus. So really, it's been a look at Mark and, and, and uh, Jesus in the book of Mark. Um, next week, we're going to start our More Than Words. We do this annually, talk about Christmas, you know, all that kind of kicks off next week. Um, but today, we're wrapping this up. So Mark um, chapter, uh, let's see, 10. I had to get that right. Uh, Mark chapter 10. I'm sorry, Mark chapter 12. See, that's why I'm off. Mark chapter 12, verse 18. Mark chapter 12, verse 18. It says, Some Sadducees, we'll talk about who these people are, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first one took a wife, and he died, leaving no children. The second one married her, died, leaving behind no children, and the third likewise, and so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, so that whole scenario is for this. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be for all seven had married her. Yeah, we're all like, who cares? <laughs> you know what I mean? We read this question, and we're like, who really cares? What is this even about? Why is this here? Why is this question in this text, you know? And we don't quite understand what's going on here. Why is there this, this discussion about marriage and eternity? You know, it kind of brings up this whole question about the afterlife and what goes on. Why is this here? Now, my personal opinion is, is because Mark and the Holy Spirit want to get us to the second part of the story we're going to look at. So there's something else that they're driving us to. If you get stuck on this verse, if you get stuck on this passage and you think it's this unsolvable conundrum and therefore the whole Bible's not true, you've missed the point. You've really missed the point. The point isn't this question. The point isn't this, this passage. The point is what's going to come next, which we're going to look at. But here's what I would say if I kind of had to— Jesus is going to come back to this. Here's what I would say. I think this question is here, this issue is brought up to reveal to us what our greatest loves are. What are your greatest loves? What are the things or the people in this world that you love more than anything or anyone else? That's why I think this text is here. That's why I think this story and this question is here, to reveal to us our greatest love. So here are the Sadducees, this group of people, and it says they're the Sadducees. Here, let me, I'm not going to give you everything about them, but you need to understand a little bit about them. They did not believe in the afterlife. So the very fact that they're asking this question should be like tip you off that they don't care. They don't care what the answer to the question is. They don't even believe in the premise of the question. They're trying to get to something else. They're really driving a, another agenda with this question that they're asking. So they didn't believe that it, there was an afterlife. They're Jewish. They just believed that when you die, you die. And that was it. So they had no idea in the afterlife. They lived, everything they did was for the here and now. They lived their lives for today. Now, I've heard this said before. They didn't believe in an afterlife, and that's why they're sad, you see. <laughs> Got it? So that way you can remember who the Sadducees are, right? Now you know who they are. They don't believe that's kind of their major tenet. Everything started with there's no afterlife, okay? When you die, you die. That's why they were sad, really. So they're presenting Jesus with what they think is sort of a catch-22 question. They're like, no matter how he answers this, he's going to be wrong. 
no matter what answer he gives us, this is our opportunity to kind of jump on him and, and show how off he really is. So they think it's this catch-22 deal, and they're like, you know, if he tries to answer it, they're going to point out how ridiculous his idea of the afterlife is. So like, man, please, or like Jesus answers this question, and they're thinking, oh, please talk about the afterlife, because we're going to just rip you to shreds. The minute you start talking about a resurrection and whose wife she is, we're going to point out how ridiculous the entire system is, and we want people to understand that it's much more sensible just to live for right now. What do you see around you? What are your needs today? What makes you happy? Just live for that. So that's kind of where they're coming from and why they're asking this question. So as, as quick as we would be, I think, to sort of dismiss the Sadducees and pretend like it's not that big a deal and they're wrong and we know they're not the hero of the story, let's move on. I wanted to stop here and I wanted to talk a little bit about how some of us, I think, are like the Sadducees. You're like, well, I believe in an afterlife. That's not like me, and I'm not sad all the time. That's not me. How would I possibly be like the Sadducees? How many of us live like there's no afterlife? So confessionally, you can come in here and tell me how much you believe in the afterlife. But if I look at your life and how you spend your money and how you spend your time and where your affections are and where your heart is directed, would it tell me that you really don't believe that there's an afterlife? that this world and the pleasures of this world and happiness in this place and comfort here is the main thing that we should be paying attention to. That's what we should be living for. Just like the Sadducees, we can focus all of our attention and all of our energy and all of our hopes on this life. We do all we can to make sure that our lives here are comfortable and secure and as free from discomfort as possible. And I really think that one of the reasons we might live like that as Western Christians, first of all, our culture is just totally bent toward that. You understand that, right? Like our entire culture is bent and, 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 and uh, kind of perverted toward the idea of just live for today, right? Be comfortable, be happy. That's the message of every commercial you watch. That's the message of everything that every consumer product that there is to buy. It's about being happy and being comfortable. So everything's sort of geared toward that. But as Christians, I think it's a little bit more than that. I think it's because our, our view of the afterlife is deficient. We may believe in an afterlife, but it's so vague or murky or wimpy that there would be nothing about it that would cause me to live any differently than I do today. Even if our, maybe it's not just that it's a deficient view of the afterlife, maybe we're wrong about what we think about the afterlife. Here's where I cringe. I do funerals. That's just part of the deal, right? I do funerals, and at funerals, I'll help hear people say, well, he or she got her wings, and they're, they're God's angel now. And I just cringe at that statement, because Christians, that should never come out of your mouth. We're better than the angels. Read Hebrews. We're better than the angels. We don't become angels, right? We're, we're already better than the angels. And there's going to be a day when we reach an even higher level of perfection and completeness than the angels could ever see. They look at us in awe. We don't become angels. I think sometimes our view of the afterlife is just deficient or completely wrong, and therefore we have nothing to live for other than today and what is right now. We're not heart-playing angels in heaven. We're not getting wings. We're not becoming angels. We're already better. We're not a mindless, selfish, indulgent pleasure. That's not heaven. 
Heaven is just sitting around eating bonbons, being pleasured all day long. That's not heaven. But so many of us have this perverted view of what Scripture says or doesn't say about heaven that it doesn't give us any impetus or, or uh, inspiration to live any differently today. Here's what we say. When I say afterlife, when I say Christian, this is what your life is going to be like for eternity, here's what I mean. It is an eternity of knowing God, an eternity of ever-increasing knowledge and intimacy and experience with God, an afterlife of work, and an afterlife, Scripture says, that somehow or another springs out of what you're doing here and now. I don't totally understand that, but I know Scripture says it in multiple places, that what we're doing here and now somehow serves as a platform, you know, one of those little round trampoline things that you jump off of to get into something else. So somehow or another, what you're doing now with your existence translates into what you do for an eternity. Now just think about that. Shouldn't that change how you're living today? Shouldn't that change your heart's direction for today? Where your pleasures come from right now? What brings you comfort now? Even your value of it and the importance of comfort and pleasure. All of that should be rearranged. Because we should have a right understanding of what the afterlife really is. An afterlife of worship that builds on the worship that we experience today. Now just think about that. What if some of us, and I don't know how this works, but I can see this happening. What if some of us get to heaven, we all see the same Jesus, right? We all see the same guy who died on a cross for our sins, face-to-face, Scripture says. And I'm standing next to Mindy, and somehow or another, she's just crying and weeping and in love with him, like in a love that I can't understand, a, a depth of a love that I just cannot relate to. And I'm standing there going, Praise the name of Jesus. Like, I don't even know where to start. And maybe that's because when I was here, I didn't start. Y'all understand that? What if there's a possibility that how I even experience the presence of my holy Jesus changes because of how I do or don't participate in worship today? Now, do we need to go back and start again? And have Jimmy come up and we just start all over again? Because when I get there, I want to worship really well, guys. You know what I mean? Like, I want to be in love with Jesus when I get there. And there to be no experience, as as few experiential boundaries as possible for when I I lay myself down in front of him. Does that make sense? So we ought to worship different. Serves as a springboard into how we worship there. Scripture is clear about all that. Some of us are like the Sadducees because we live for today. And we're not properly attuning our hearts to another existence that's better than this. Chapter 12, verse 24, he asked, they asked this question, and Jesus looks at him, and I wish I could have heard the tone of his voice, because I know how I would have answered this. Jesus says to them, is this not the reason that you are mistaken? That you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, neither, neither, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven, which don't marry. Don't think that we become equal with them. It's more they're not married. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Smackdown, guys. That is a beatdown, mic drop moment. That is what that is from Jesus. He just lays it on them. And I love the appeal to this obscure text in Exodus for him to make his point 
where he talks about when God appeared to, G to, to uh, Moses at the burning bush. It's just really amazing. Some of us are really bummed out by this passage. We're like, well, man, but I like my spouse. I'm, I think I love him still, right? <laughs> I think I'd like to be married in heaven. Like, isn't that part of heaven? Don't we get all good things in heaven? And isn't marriage a good thing? Why won't I be married in, in heaven? I don't understand what Christ is saying. What's the bigger truth here? So over the next, well, I take that back. In a 12-month period from this last April this year to April next year, I will, I will do four weddings total, four total weddings. And I do a lot of them. I have done a lot of them over the years. They're great, and there's these super sweet people, you know, and they're coming together, and they love each other, and smoochy kissy, whatever, you know, and all that. And I love these people. That's one of the cool things about what I get to do. You know, I, I generally really, really like these people that I get to do these weddings for. So that's fun. Um, everybody's full of joy and full of hope. Pretty much for the most part, on your wedding day, you're looking forward and you're like, this is only going to get better. Right? Don't tell them any differently. All right, we'll just let them, <laughs> let them start there. It is one of the, quite frankly, maybe, maybe childbirth, it's one of the greatest human experiences you can be a part of. To be honest, go to a wedding and really celebrate what it is. And it's a blast. It is so much fun, so much joy. So as, here's what I think Jesus is saying. As great as marriage can be, and it's phenomenal, right? Okay. As, <laughs> as great, it's a good day. So we're good. No, as great, <laughs> as great as marriage can be, now just think about this. It is just a dress rehearsal for the great resurrection life that God has planned for us. Now, some of us who are married and in a good place in your marriage, I just want you to digest that for a second. Because this can be amazing. My best day here is simply a dress rehearsal for the great resurrection life that God has for me there. Amen. Amen. Amen that I haven't even begun to taste the greatness of what God has for me however great I think it might be. It is simply a dress rehearsal for the great resurrection life. It is the great prep ground before we get promoted to an eternity. So it's not death, it's promotion day. We get promoted to an eternity where we experience living with the bride of Christ in joy and shared unity and happiness and service and submission perfectly forever. I don't need marriage there. You guys get that? It is part of God's gift to us here to show us what our relationship with him is going to be like. And don't ever reverse that. Don't ever think that somehow marriage is somehow the greater truth over the Trinity. Marriage is the representation of the glory of the Trinity, guys. The unity that happens between God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. We get to taste it a little bit here with another human being for eternity. For eternity, I learned what it means to live in perfect unity with the bride of Christ and the glorious Jesus Christ. It is a foretaste, right? What was that old hymn? It's a foretaste of glory divine. We aren't living, and this is, we've got to divest ourselves of this. We really do as Christians. Western Christians have got to shed this stuff. We are not living to live our best life for now. We live our best life now, including life with wonderful spouses and fantastic marriages for forever. 
We don't live it for now. We live it for forever. What we believe about these things changes how we live now. If I think marriage is an end unto itself, this text bums me out. If I understand that marriage is part of the platform that God's given me to springboard, to jump into eternity into something even greater, marriage receives its proper honor and respect and due here, but I don't put too much weight on it, an improper weight on it. Our, and here's the problem, right? Our inability to comprehend anything better than this right now shows how great that is. You ever thought about that? My inability to think there's, there can't be anything better than marriage. There, there couldn't be anything better than spending my life with someone that I love. My inability to think of something greater than that probably is a sign to me how great it actually is. No eye has seen, right? No eye has seen what it is that God has prepared for us. So some of us, this passage bums us out. There's another group of us here today. This is our favorite passage. Let that sink in. <laughs> Amen. We will not be married in heaven. <laughs> right? <laughs> On bad days, in bad seasons, we're going to go here and just take some solace and some comfort. <laughs> right? All, things, all good things must come to an end. Right? Here's the thing, man. Jesus says this at the end of his little explanation. He says, God's not the God of the dead. God's the God of the living. God's the God of the living. And I think in Christ, he's going to get into this. The, the second part of the story, he's going to dig into this. Christ is imminently concerned with how we live today. How we live today. What we believe about the afterlife, about the next life, which is more real than this life, that's hard to understand too it's the more real existence it matters in how we interact with other people and with god today do you understand that if i have an understanding that there is an afterlife it's going to change how i interact with god today and how i interact with other people today and christ is imminently concerned with how i interact with god and how i interact with other people we have questions about cosmic issues don't we right good and bad and evil and where they come from and ultimate answers to suffering things like when is the marriage supper of the lamb if you're a nerd about second coming kind of stuff will i know people when i get to heaven we want all those kinds of answers right jesus looks at us and he looks at them like they're asking this ridiculous question about somebody married seven times and who are they married to and they don't even believe in the afterlife and he recognizes that he knows where they're coming from and he looks at them, and I think he looks at us, and he says, listen, interesting question, right? How are you treating the people that you love today? Isn't that the greater question? The greater question isn't who is this woman going to be married to when she gets there. The question is for the husband, are you loving your wife while she's here? How are you doing in interacting and loving people in your life right now? You want to know who she'll be married to in heaven. How are you taking care of your wives right now? Isn't that the greater question? He is the God of the living. So we're going to just take that idea and ask the question of ourselves. How are you living? How are you living today? I would then spin it into the future. Jesus is going to do the same thing. How will you live then? 
if we believe in an afterlife and we believe it's this amazing afterlife and it's better than anything we could know right now, how can I know what I will live like then? Because I believe scripture says it starts now. And it's one way that you can know whether or not you love God or other people love God. How are you living today? Some of you heard me say, I asked that question, and some of you are like, I have to be better. You automatically go to morality. Pastor just said, I have to be good so I can have a happy forever. I need to don't drink or cuss or chew or go out with the girls who do. Okay, I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna do that. I gotta be good so I can have a good eternity someday. I'm not talking about morality in order to stay safe or to be clean. I'm talking about true morals that come from a deep sense of love and commitment to Jesus Christ, loving other people, caring for the unlovely people, the deeply wounded people in our lives. God is the God of the living. And here's what's terrifying about this idea. You can be breathing and not living. I don't have time to take that little phrase that Jesus says when he says God's the God of the living. He implicitly applies God of the living to eternity, which means that there will be people who live really for eternity and others who don't. They'll be existing for eternity, but they won't really be living for eternity. So you can be living and breathing, but not alive. D. James Kennedy, pastor, Florida, amazing guy, passed away years ago. In his program, at his funeral, they printed a little snippet from one of his sermons, and it says this. It was amazing. He says, now, I know that someday I'm going to come to what people say is the end of this life. They will probably put me in a box and roll me right down here in front of the church. And some people will gather around, and a few people will cry. But I am not going to be dead. I will be more alive than I have ever been in my life. And I will be looking down upon you poor people who are still here in the land of dying and have not yet joined me in the land of the living. If you believe that with your heart of hearts and the depths of who you are, it will change how you live today. He says to them, he goes, you don't understand this. And then he says, you don't know the power of God. It's really stinging rebuke he gives them. You don't know, understand the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. You don't know what God can do. Some of us are looking at life, and we're like, man, God, life is hard. Life is full of pain, physical pain, or emotional pain, or mental pain. There's suffering all around us, and illness, and death. I can't handle this. It's too much. God, my body is failing. There's no hope. God, I've suffered at the hands of other people, and I mean really horribly suffered at the hands of other people, and I just want to quit. Listen, don't deny the power of God. Don't deny the power of God. Know the power of God. He can change your circumstances. He can heal up in you what is hurt. He can bind up the brokenhearted. He can heal physically what is wrong with you. He can save your soul from sin and hell, even if your body falls apart, when your body falls apart. And he can preserve you for an eternity that is better than anything you can dream of in this world. Know the power of God. Don't deny it. No matter how hard this world gets and how painful it is, there is a God who is powerful and able, and he has overcome. And because he's overcome, 
we will overcome. Don't get jaded. Some of us are really religious. We're good people and we're religious and we can get jaded and we can get hardened and calloused in our approach to suffering and pain and emotional obstacles to faith, all that kind of stuff. Man, don't deny the power of God. Don't get too pragmatic or symbolic about God. And by that I mean, man, if you're, I'm, for, I'm older, I'm, I've got a lot of years on me now, right? I've seen a lot of people I know get sick and die. I need to make sure and guard my heart that when I go to a hospital room, I don't just go through the motions and pray a prayer and walk out. That when I pray that prayer for God to raise him up off the sick bed, I mean it. I'm appealing to a God who has power, right? If he chooses not to in his goodness, amen. But if he chooses to in that moment, reach down with power and raise that person up off the dead, amen. And I want to pray to the God who can do what he wants to do. I want to make sure I'm not jaded and hard against the power of God. He looks at this person and he says, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. The Sadducees hated Jesus. They're trying to trap him here. They're trying to get the crowd to turn against him. What are they selling? Here's what they're selling. Live for today. Be comfortable. Have power. Have stuff. Right? Own your own things. Be, be uh, in charge of your own life. Have security. Jesus comes along and he's like, that's not even the point of any of it. Even if I were to heal your body, it's going to die again. Jesus wants us to reorient our hearts around his heart and around his desires, his character for who we're supposed to be, which would then cause us to give away our stuff. Not accrue things just to accrue them, but to give away our stuff. To give away power for other people. To seek influence, but to do it in order to bring godliness into the place where God's given us. So listen, here's what I'm going to say. If you're counting on some election or some political movement or something making America great again as your great hope for life because you want a life that is trouble-free and full of personal peace and affluence, not only are you going to be greatly disappointed and very frustrated, you're not going to end up liking Jesus very much. He didn't come, up, come to prop up a political system or to promise you personal peace and prosperity. He looks at us when we have that mentality, I got to do everything I can to hold on to my stuff and power and comfort and security. And he looks at us and he says, you don't understand scripture and you don't know the power of God. How are you living like there is better than here. Look at verse 28. So he's had this conversation with the, the Sadducees. A scribe comes to him. This is another person, another group of people, another guy. One of the scribes came and hears them arguing, and he recognizes that Jesus had answered them well. So he's hearing what Jesus says, and he's like, oh, this guy gets it, right? And he asked Jesus, what commandment is the foremost of all? So we're talking about the Old Testament here. Hey, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus answered, The foremost is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. 
this scribe kind of gets it, right? He kind of understands. He understands that what Jesus is saying is good and right, but to try to figure out who's married to who after seven, it's just ridiculous, and it's got nothing to do with Scripture, and he gets that. So he kind of asks, he asks, I think, a legitimate question, and Jesus is going to say that. So he's like, hey, these guys don't even believe in an afterlife. There has to be a good way to live here. I believe in an afterlife, but I want to know, like, what's the best way to live here so that I can be prepared for that? Jesus answers him very clearly, right? Love God. And he says he's the only one. He's the only God, the only sufficient one, the only worthy one, the only capable one. Our lives and our loves can't be divided between external gods and my gods and big G God. There's only one God. Love him. Second thing he says, love your neighbor. Just real clear. Some of us are hard-headed and we don't learn very quickly, okay? So we want to talk a little bit about, like, how do we love Jesus? Because I love a lot of things. I love pizza. I do. I love Lupe Tortilla, big time. Love Rocky Road ice cream. Bluebell, not the kind where they fake the marshmallow cream junk in there. It's got to have real marshmallows in it, okay? This is what I love. I love to hate the Cowboys sometimes. You should have pity on me. That was a pity statement. <laughs> Sam Storms is a pastor in Oklahoma. He tries to help us understand what it looks like to love God. Because we do struggle with this. Remember I said earlier, our marriages are not the point of the Trinity aren't pointing to our marriages. Our marriages are pointing to the Trinity. Our marriages are living examples of what our relationship with God is and God's relationship with himself is like. So Sam Storms is like, listen, if you don't understand how to love God, think about how you ought to and you would love your spouse. Ten questions. I'm going to post these on the church's website later, but I'm going to run through them. He says, is the Lord the all-consuming passion of my life? If I took Lord out and stuck your girlfriend's name in there or your boyfriend's name in there or your spouse's name in there, would that help you? Or your child's name in there? The Lord is the all-consuming passion of my life. This is how you love the Lord. Do I have a deep, intense, abiding affection for my Lord? Third, am I loyal to my God with an exclusive love? a jealous love that is directed only toward him? Do I resist and even oppose anything or anyone that seeks to do my Lord harm? Stick spouse's name in there, right? Think Mike Pence. He won't go to lunch with someone by himself of the opposite sex. Why? Because he is resisting and opposing anything that seeks to do his wife harm. Do I love God like that? Am I zealous to defend my Lord's name and honor? Do I enjoy spending time with my Lord? Do I do things that please my Lord and increase his joy? Ooh, think about that. Now we've raised the specter. Wow, you mean I can do things that make God happy? And if I love him, wouldn't I want to do those things? Am I seeking to do things that make God happy? Or am I constantly asking him for things that would make me happy? That's a terrible marriage, y'all. Do I brag on my Lord to others? Man, we do it on Facebook with our kids all the time, our grandkids all the time. Are you that effusive of your praise about Jesus to other people? 
Do I brag about my Lord to other people? Do I tell my Lord that I love him? Do I talk with my Lord as much as I can? Is it difficult to love a being that I can't see, touch, feel, smell, hear? Yes. Do I know how to love? Yes. Am I loving God like that? Probably not. I'll post those 10 things on the website later so you can see them. Love the Lord your God. Now, how do I love my neighbor? What does that look like? Do I have to just be nice to them? Can I wave at them when I drive into the garage? You know? Do I pick up their trash can and I have to talk to anybody if it blows over in a storm and just drive off? What does it look like to love my neighbor? This is interesting. He quotes Leviticus chapter 19, verse 23. Go read Leviticus 19. You're like, oh, I'd rather pull my eyebrows out, okay? Go read Leviticus 19. In the Old Testament, he tells us how to love our neighbor. You ready for this? This is just in one chapter. Care for the poor. Don't steal. Don't lie. Be fair in your business dealings. Care for the deaf and the blind or those who are unable to do. Do work with justice. When you do work, work justly. Don't slander other people. Watch out for the well-being of your neighbor. That goes way beyond simple things. Don't hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor when necessary for his good and your good. Don't resent other people and take revenge. How do I love my neighbor? A lot of it's proactive and a lot of it's reactive, but there's a lot there. He, he makes it clear. None of this is difficult to understand. The difficulty is in the adopting the value and then doing it. That's the hard part. We can be good and do good and yet not love God and not love our neighbors. That's religion that doesn't have any value. Verse 32. So this guy comes up and says, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus answers. He says this. The scribe says, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one. There is no one else besides him. He goes and recaps the scripture. And he adds this at the end of verse 33. To love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's the end of verse 33. So the scribe throws that in there. He's like, I get it. Loving God and loving your neighbor is better than sacrifices and offerings. When Jesus saw that the scribe had answered intelligently, he said to him, this is so interesting, he says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions because he just shut everybody down. Such an interesting exchange here. The, the scribe kind of gets it. Jesus says, man, you are so close. You are so close to the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? He was close to the kingdom, but he hadn't submitted to the king yet. He loves the ideas. He loves the philosophy. He loves the theology and the theory. And literally, he is close to the kingdom. He's talking to Jesus the embodiment of God's kingdom. He's close to him, but he's not in. He's not submitted to him. So here's what he's loving. He's loving the idea that he could fulfill the law. I can love God, and I can love my neighbor. I got it. Thanks for the help, Jesus. He has not understood that the law is the preschool teacher that shows you that addition, but it really points out that life is full of algebra and trigonometry. You understand that? The Old Testament law isn't meant to be an end unto itself. It's meant to show you this is so much more complicated than you think, and you can't do it by yourself. 
The law is the preschool teacher that shows you everything is much more complicated than you ever dreamed it could be, and you can't do it on your own. Scribe doesn't get that yet. He thinks, now I understand. Now I can do it. Who here in this room is like this scribe this morning? You're not a Sadducee. You're a scribe. You know so much. You love what Jesus says about so much. You can hold your own in philosophical discussions and theological discussions, but you haven't submitted to Jesus as your king. Who here is like this man today? This is where you, it's a shocking response, guys. He says this to this man, and this would be a shocking thing. Shocking to the, the scribe, shocking to the people around them. Here's what this means. It means, so he says, listen, you're near, but you're not in, which means this. Jesus has claimed the authority to, to decide or say who's in and who's out. This would have been a shocking thing to the scribe because the scribe would have been working on the system. I, no, I can earn my way there. I can be good. I can keep the law and get in. And Jesus looks at him and says, no, no, no. You think you're evaluating me with your question. I'm actually evaluating your heart. And I see in your heart that you're close, but you're not in. He's like, well, of course I'm in the kingdom. I'm an expert in the law, man. If, if there's anybody in, it's me. And then the crowd is listening to this, and they're thinking, dang, if he ain't in, I'm, who's in, right? If that guy didn't get in, how do I get in? What's fascinating about this is last week or the week before, when we looked at a blind man, Bartimaeus, he got it. The blind man saw it. The blind man sees what this guy can't see it. He cries out and says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He got it. But this scribe, this professor of the law, doesn't understand it. Here's what he says. So in my text, it says, he responds to Jesus. He says, right, teacher. Actually, that word, it says, that's a beautiful answer. That's what he says to Jesus. That is a beautiful answer, teacher. That should show you something, too. He calls him teacher. That is a beautiful answer answer teacher so here's what that means you can agree with christ about scripture you can agree with with christ about morals and on relationships and be close but not in because you're missing the final step agreeing with god about things and morally agreeing with him doesn't mean that you're in the kingdom Jesus wants to answer this question for all of us, and he wants to stir up inside of our hearts this dissatisfaction. I can understand the law. I can, under, I can agree with Jesus on certain things, but my gosh, I ought to be shredded in my soul that I am obligated. Now that I understand the law, I'm obligated to keep the law. Then I realize I can't keep the law. There's 630 plus commandments in the Old Testament. I can't do that. It ought to raise up this deep, torn-up understanding. I have no ability to keep the Old Testament. Listen, as long as you think you can do it on your own, you're close but not in. All of it is to point out to us our inadequate ability to be right with God. Just think about this, guys. Jesus is less than a week away from the cross. He is basically saying at this point, the temple and the sacrifices and agreeing with God and power and the law and the self, all of them, none of them 
are capable and able to get you to God. Only I am. Only Christ is capable of getting you there. He's the only one sufficient to change your heart so that you can keep the law. His very first act when you submit to him as king is to pardon your sins and your crimes against the king. Then he gives you a robe and a ring. He escorts you to the Father's table for a feast, and he says to you, follow me. Follow me into the worst, most troubling waters of your entire life, all the way to death, through the door of death, and into a forever that's better than anything you can ever imagine. You can be close, but not in. This means that you can be outside, camped out on the doorstep. Some of you, you're adult church rats. You've been in church your whole life. You've been in church around the church for so long. And you've just pitched a tent right outside the truth of the kingdom, never submitting to who Christ is, agreeing with him, maybe liking him, wanting to be close to him, but not in. That means that you can be outside. Here's what you have to do. You have to give up chasing things that are here and now to make you happy. They will fade, and they will fail, and they will fall apart by their very nature, at their molecular being. They will disintegrate. Like the Sadducees, you're counting on the things of this world to make you happy. That doesn't get you in. That keeps you out. The harder you hold on to the things of this world, the harder you hold on to that doorknob and keep it from opening up from the inside. You have to give up following other teachers because all they can ever show you is that you can't do it on your own. You have to give up being good. You have to give up thinking that I can keep the law to get to God. You have to give all of those things up. Submit to Christ as king. The whole question about marriage was to get us to this point about loving God and loving Jesus. Here's what's cool, and I, I'm going to skip this. Don't worry about it. I've already, I'm going to come back to it. When Jesus says this whole thing, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. It's called the Shema. Jewish people, strict Orthodox Jewish people, you may see a box on their hands or a box on their foreheads or a box by their door. They'll kiss it when they come inside their door. They walk through their doorpost. It's that scripture verse. It's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So is it, I think this is fascinating that Jesus brings this up here. And what does he attach it to? He attaches, there is one God. Love the Lord your God. He is ultimately looking at all of us and he's saying, God's not an idea. God's not a thing or something or a power somewhere else. It's me. When you as a Jew or you as a Gentile look in your heart and go, yes, love the Lord our God. Jesus is saying, he's interposing himself in that scripture and saying, that's me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one, and he's Jesus. How do you get in? Submit to the king. Love Jesus. You can't do that on your own. You have to ask him to come in and change everything about you and rebirth you renew you and restore you and give you a new heart and a new life. As you guys bow your heads, close your eyes.
Pastor Joe, how do I respond today? You ready? I'm going to walk through some stuff. How are you supposed to respond? Holy Spirit, ask him, what are you saying to me? How should I respond today? Open the eyes of my heart to know that what I'm clinging to, what I'm looking for to be happy will fail me. Can you pray? That's a bold prayer. God, open the eyes of my heart so that I can see that the things of this world, the people in this life that I'm looking to to make me happy, they're going to fail me. Open the eyes of my heart that I would love you daily with my emotions, my actions, my heart's direction, my mind, everything about me. Open the eyes of my heart so that I can love you supremely daily. Open the eyes of my heart so I can love my neighbors. Not in a concept. God, give me a person. Give me a name. I want to love my neighbors with action, not in my heart. I don't want to feel warm toward my neighbor. I want to love them. I want to show them the love of God. Here at Christmas, use me. Open the eyes of my heart, God, that I would leave these things and step all the way toward Jesus as king. Some of you are camped out, and all you got to do is in your heart right now, take that step. Could you do it? Take that step toward Jesus. Jesus, I don't get all this. It doesn't even all make sense. But I'm agreeing with you. I want to love God, and I want to love my neighbor, and I know I can't do it on my own. Save me. Be the king of my life. Open my heart so I can step all the way toward Jesus as king. If you were talking with Jesus... Would he look at you and he say, man, you're so close. You're so close. That ought to echo in some of your heads. It should haunt you in your dreams. You're so close. You're so close. That means you're out. That means you're out right now. Get in. God, I would pray that you would keep us from being a lazy church, a busy church, but a lazy church, God, a church that's full of people, maybe even praying we're morally responsible, God, but we're not loving you. Don't let us be that church. God, that we would give all of us to you, our heart, our soul, our all, every breath, every choice, every desire, God, every dream, every relationship, God, that we would love Jesus. Can you just pray that? Let us be a church that loves Jesus. Father, we thank you for this service today, for this message today, for what Mark gave us today. Let us see Christ for who he is. Not get caught up in silly questions. Change how we live today because this isn't it. We're living for something better. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for being here. I'm gonna ask Minnie to come up. She's got something to tell us about our ladies' ministry.